Welcome to the Project Fitness Podcast for fitness professionals and fitness enthusiasts who want to be better at life. Fitness is the greatest investment of anyone's life. However, it's not easily obtained, and anyone who says different is just plain wrong. Join award-winning personal trainer and strength conditioning coach Chris Fudge every Monday as he explores all aspects of fitness that can lead you to your optimal health. If you want to learn useful, practical how-tos of weight loss, exercise science, nutrition, or just how to optimize your time in the gym and life, this show is for you. Welcome to another episode of the Project Fitness Podcast. And today, our guest is someone who is no stranger to the weight room. He's a sports physical therapist from Kansas, Missouri, whose background is all things strength conditioning and exercise science. He has over a decade of competitive weightlifting in his back pocket. He is driven to help people move better, decrease pain, and reach the body's strength potential. He is the man behind Squat University, aka the Dean of Squat University, and just released a book, Rebuilding Milo. Project Fitness Podcast welcomes Dr. Aaron Horshik. Welcome, Dr. Aaron. Thank you so much for having me on. That's really, I spent all my time just doing the intro, so I don't really know what else to, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast here. First question about Squat University. How do you get in? Do you need like a good reference letter? Like I know Blaine Sumner, like I don't know if that would work. There's no reference letters needed. Tuition is 100% free. Uh, I try to provide as much free value content across every single social media platform nowadays, um, because as I believe, uh, education is the is the key to creating change in the world. And and uh, I really wanted to to create something that everyone could have access to. So yes, the tuition is free for Squat University. The way I I found you was actually as a client sent me something, a move you were doing, said, hey, check this guy out. He's got this thing. And it was just like, yeah. And then another client did it. And I'm like, yeah. And then I started looking and I'm like, yeah. And there was just so many things that you were doing that people in the fitness industry, in the barbell industry specifically, were benefiting from. And then you did your squat book and then now you're rebuilding Milo. And I read that book. And my first question for you, my friend, is why did you write the book? That's a great question. And basically it all comes down to like where I was in my own career as a weightlifter and that, you know, everyone loves gaining strength and trying to get strong. And in that pursuit, there's not a single person that goes throughout their life without some sort of nagging injuries and myself, you know, included in that there wasn't a single year that went by that something didn't start aching, you know, left shoulder, right knee, back pain, you know, and sometimes it could be as little as like, dang, it's just every time I do a jerk overhead, I can feel that right shoulder. Don't feel like I'm performing well to like, wow, I cannot pick up a barbell for three weeks because it hurts so bad in my back, you know? So I've had everything on that spectrum and there's not a lot of great information that's available for people without going to a doctor first or a physical therapist. And even then, we often get a lot of bad advice. I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast has had the opportunity to go to a doctor when seeking some type of relief from their pain. What does the doctor always say? Well, how'd you hurt yourself? Oh, I was benching and my shoulder started hurting. All right, we'll take this pain medication and stop benching. Well, that can't be the answer. Or maybe they go to a physical therapist and they just do all these really light little baby exercises and they never are progressed back to benching, the thing that hurt them in the first place. So I wanted to create basically a book that has my entire approach to helping athletes get out of pain and get back to doing the things that they love to do in a step-by-step format. So every single chapter, as you know, is dedicated to a different part of the body. And it's meant to be sort of that encyclopedia that sits on the shelf so that when you need it, all the information you could ever want is right there. So you have back pain one day for whatever reason on whatever lift, you pull it off, you switch to that specific chapter, you read through how does the injury occur? What steps can you take to do an evaluation on yourself? Very simple tests and measures that you can do mostly by yourself, some with a friend and figure out, oh, okay, here's why I developed pain. And here's some things I can do to get out of pain because there's no one size fits all, you know, despite what we are told every single day on social media, like copper fit this and infused that or pain medications, things like that. 
they're not the way to actually fully address an injury and get over it in the right way. We want to address cause and it all comes down to movement and actually the way in which we can rehab ourselves through different exercises to get us back to doing the things that we love to do in the first place. So I wanted in basically a first step line of defense that any single person, no matter your education level, you don't have to be a doctor of physical therapy to read this, to understand it, to take actionable steps, to help you get out of pain in doing the things that you want to do lifting in the gym again. So you were lifter first, then, and then I guess you were attending physical therapy school and you had a couple aches and pains and then you kind of figured it out yourself. Were you the only one that was doing that? Like in the barbell world or other PTs kind of like, yeah, we also do weights. Or were you like the only one who was in the cage in the rack and, you know, doing snatches and such. So before me, I always say like, I'm only a dwarf standing on the shoulders of giants who have come before us as the line goes, you know, before me in the physical therapy world was Kelly Starrett of mobility wad and now the ready state. Now Kelly, Big meathead too, just like me, physical therapist. Kelly sort of found his niche within the CrossFit community. So he did speak to people about like squatting and mobility and things like that. Um, Kelly himself is not an Olympic weightlifter, though he did do lifting. Um, And before that, you know, there, there were people that spoke to athletes, you know, but it wasn't necessarily the barbell world. So yeah, I started competing in Olympic weightlifting in 2005 and competed for over 11 years before I decided to, all right, time to hang up the shoes competitively on the weekends. I still train Olympic weightlifting every week. Um, So my background was in that ever before I became a physical therapist. So I think I brought a unique set of insight into the physical therapy profession that there was not anything to a a great degree there before. Mm -hmm. And so when you were in there, you're like, guys, we got to start looking at people actually moving. Cause I've heard you say many times, was it specifically you said, um, uh, quality over crap. So you said like, you have to have quality movement over crap technique, crap technique, crap technique. (laughs) (laughs) What does crap technique specifically mean? It's the idea that as a society, we've conceptually rearranged how we view different movements and specifically the squat to think that it's in loaded movement ever before. It's something you just do throughout the day. And here's, this is sort of the antithesis sort of behind the squat Bible, which was my first book back in 2017. And it sort of dawned on me sort of like this deja vu like scenario that just kept on happening as a physical therapist, when someone would come to me, and I'm talking not post-operatively. So someone that just has knee pain or back pain didn't just come from a surgery. I have to basically be a detective and try to figure out, well, why did this person develop their pain? Cause it just didn't come out of nowhere. So in doing that, I often start off with an, uh, a movement-based evaluation. I'll just tell someone, get out of your shoes, show me a squat, body weight squat, no shoes on. What does it look like? And time and time again, I was reminded that these amazing athletes that are putting up big numbers in the weight room yet could not perform a great looking body weight squat without shoes on. Things were shifting around. Maybe the feet were collapsing, back was rounding. You know, there were small signs of problems in showing movement competency. And when, when we explain that, I don't mean that someone's going to look like Lu Zhao Jun, the amazing you know, Chinese weightlifter with this perfectly upright chest every single time. But there are certain fundamental principles and factors that we want to see in certain movements. I want to see your foot stable. It shouldn't be collapsing completely over into excessive pronation. Your knees should track in line with your feet the entire time. You know, you should be able to maintain a relative neutral spinal position. I don't want it rounding over like you have a turtle shell on your back. You know, you, there's these certain fundamental principles that need to be maintained for quality movement. And then we place a load on our body. It shouldn't come load first, then movement quality second. And I think because of that, we have entered into a day of age where we see a lot of these sort of nagging injuries that don't need to occur or don't need to occur for the length of time they do if we take a step back and, and move well first before we load at the bar. But in today's age, I mean, we're very uh, much so centered on the idea of, of moving big weight and, and impressing our friends on social media and getting stronger as fast as I can. It's that now, now, now mentality. Um, and sort of the, 
tortoise and hare analogy, you know, many people want to be the hare. Not many people want to take the slow and progressive approach to building strength. When in reality, that is the approach that allows you to still build great strength, but win the game in the end, because you come out of the iron game at 80 years old, still able to walk up and down stairs, don't have you know, two total knees and a bum hip and a bum shoulder because of the way you approached weight training when you were younger. It's a very strong message. Sometimes you'll see people come into the gym. Like I see this all the time who people don't, they don't move well, but then they get the shoes on, the sleeves on, the belt on, the weight on, and then all of a sudden the squat looks good. Why has that happened? Because I would assume if you don't move well unloaded, you shouldn't move well loaded. So a lot of times it depends what you're talking about. So if we're talking about the shoes, the weightlifting shoes basically can give you a false sense of your movement capabilities because it raises your heel off the ground and allows more knee over toe translation. So it allows you to fake better ankle mobility. Now for some people, it can be a great help with technique. That's why Olympic weightlifters always wear weightlifting shoes. You don't see someone on the Olympic weightlifting platform in Chuck's. Well, it's because weightlifting shoes allow the Olympic weightlifters to sit to the deepest position possible with the most upright chest position as possible. Mm -hmm. So it changes mechanics for a beneficial reason, it allows you to get under a snatch and a clean much more efficient, which creates more optimal lifts. So that can be one thing. If someone has poor ink mobility, they throw on weightlifting shoes, all of a sudden their squat looks better, but they think they're good to go. When in reality, I'm telling them, Hey, keep doing what you're doing. But I need you to spend 10 minutes throughout your day just working on some ankle mobility and learning to try to utilize what capabilities you do have at the ankle so that you can still squat barefoot when you need to and then put on the shoes when you need to as well. So too often we sort of just use these things that we put onto our body and give ourselves this false sense of our movement capabilities without ever thinking, oh, I still have work to do. Now we talk about knee sleeves and knee wraps and things like that. Um, I've even had people use the idea or say, uh, you know, I need at least 135 pounds on the bar in order to squat below parallel. Yeah. You know, they, you need the weight to be able to get a deep squat. Well, that means that you're lacking proper movement capabilities. You don't own that movement. You're merely surviving the movement. Mm, you're so yeah, I basically, I, I think it's something that, um, until you really have the movement capability to perform a great looking body weight squat, the things that you're doing in the gym while loaded and they may look good, still have a weak link behind them. And you're just not as optimal as you could be. I'm not saying that you're going to be injured because there's a lot that goes into injury, but I'm saying you could be even better in the gym if you focus on doing some of the smaller things first. Yeah, so it, it, it sort of it sort of turns on that table of of talking about we could become more optimal, and that's really where we're talking rehab, we're talking performance. It's all about how can we make ourselves or put ourselves into the most optimal position for whatever our goals are. And I think if we can move well first and then load up the bar, we can become even stronger, even more fast, or powerful things like that. Yeah, in, in your book, you have simple assessments for each major joint: the low back, the knee, the hip, the elbow, the shoulder the ankle, you have like, okay, you got to be able to do this, then this, identify the injury, this, this, this. How quickly like do you normally see when someone comes in and they say, I've got these pains going on. Let's say we go to the squat. Then you go to the squat assessment, body weight, and they're all over the place. How quick do people tend to come back? Like if their body weight squat cleans up really fast, do their, their symptoms tend to dissipate quite quickly? Uh, it depends on the person, how long it's been going on for, um, the type of injury that they're dealing with. But I will say once we get things moving well, mm -hmm. symptoms usually will go down at the same time. So you'll see this as we improve in movement quality, whatever type of injury that they're dealing with, they start to feel better because it leads them. The squat, why it's so fundamental is because it sets the precedent for so many other things that you do throughout your day. And if you can do a quality squat, and show good competency, good foot stability, good hip hinge control, good pelvic and, and you know core control. That sets the precedent for picking your kid off the ground, moving a box in your garage. You know, doing different things throughout your day sort of all stem from that basic movement. 
And if you can show competency and learn how to control load in that, it bleeds into so many other things that you do throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Are, the, are the majority of people that you're working with now, are they just post-op, average Joey's, gen pop? Because you're, you know, the Instagram is, you know, you got World's Strongest Man, you had Blaine Sumner, you had the Canadian Kelly on, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so who, who are your people that you're working with regularly? Uh, 99% of my clientele are people that are coming to my clinic just for squat university treatment. So they are strength-minded people, weightlifters, powerlifters, crossfitters, um, basically anyone who wants to, to pick up a, a weight and is finding some sort of injury. Those are, that's my clientele right now, really. I mean, I've got one person right now I'm thinking that had a total knee replacement mm-hmm. and was sent to me. Um, and even then it was a recommendation through a friend that brought her to me. So, um, unlike when I first started, uh, training as a physical therapist, where I would be at the subject of doctors sending me patients. Now, even then I was still seeing a very high volume of athletes because I was at a sports physical therapy location, um, in Kansas city. Um, I would be seeing a lot of baseball, basketball players, football players, things like that. Um, but I was maybe, 80% 80% athletes, 20% just general pop. Um, now it's 99% are strength-minded individuals who are finding injury. Um, all the way down from, you know, a, a high schooler who's having some back pain squatting to uh, all of people right now. I've been fortunate enough to, to have patients that fly in from all over the United States and from all over the world for, for some treatment, which has been really cool. You notice any similarities? Because when you're working with some of the elite, right? Like, mm-hmm. like Blaine Sumner is not a small man, right? <laughs> He's the not. strongest man, not, not, not a small guy. No. When you see like these supersized human beings that are also probably super athletic, is there exactly. any um, similarities you notice right away? Be like, oh yeah, this guy, these big guys are always good at this or big girls. Uh, that's a good question. You know, I see a lot of really differences because some of the people that are very big are also very athletic, deceivingly athletic. You would think like Martins. I mean, the dude weighs over 320 pounds yet Martins can do a pistol squat, yeah. you know? So a lot of people assume that these big athletes are very stiff, you know, and they can't move very well. Martins moves very well, you know? So across the board, there's a little bit, it's, it's not all the same. Um, I would say the big thing though, is that, when I approach an athlete every single time, no matter how big they are, I'm looking for very similar things. You know, I'm looking for uh, mobility, symmetry side to side. I'm looking for stability. Um, I'm not asking them to do a pistol squat, but I'm requesting them no matter how much they squat to still have the capability to perform a small single leg squat. So I I think um, across the board, there's, I can't say everyone's the same or everyone's different because it's a case by case basis. Um, but it's, it's sometimes interesting to see such a, a big person who can squat over a thousand pounds yet can also still do things that most of us from an outsider's perspective, are like, there's no way he could do that. And deceivingly they're, uh, you know, they can show you some amazing things. Yeah. And I know Martin, I've seen, I've seen a move on your, on your IG there. The guy's yeah. a Greek athlete, hence, you know, world's strongest man, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, your book is heavy. Like I almost, like <laughs> I almost had a stretch afterwards from carrying around. Yeah, I think it was 400 pages or 480 with all your research in there as well. But it, it's a thick book, but I was actually very surprised because I, I purchased it as a text. I said, mm-hmm. it's a textbook, you know, I work in the field, but it was like a novel. Like I, I, I couldn't put it down and it was so easily digestible. Compared to some books that I've read in the past that talks about human anatomy, um, uh, rehabilitation, did you purposely make it that simple or is that just who you are? That is something that I've had to work on. I'm calling you simple, dude. Sorry. I'm not saying that you're simple. No. And actually that's one of the best compliments you could give me. And for the reason that I know in my own learning that if I'm reading something that's too complicated, I, I, it doesn't digest into me. I'm not able to comprehend it. It's not actionable. When I first started writing back in 2012, I got done with my doctorate. Um, I, I like to continue writing. And at the time as a physical therapist, what do you do? Well, you don't really write books usually because no one really writes books on physical therapy. You write research. Mm-hmm. And when you write research, you write to impress other researchers. 
and other clinicians. So you write in this very flowery uh, way. You use a lot of big words. You, you have these long run-on sentences sometimes. And I had the idea of writing the squat Bible. And I wrote this long, I mean, I probably wrote like 400 pages single spaced for the squad Bible, the original text. And if you've ever read that one, it's only 128 pages. So it's, it's very small. And I was working at my clinic back in 2014. And one of my newer coworkers, he's like, Hey man, I like, I enjoy writing. I'd be happy to, you know, go over it with you. Cause I know you're rewriting parts of it. And he ended up being my co-author, Kevin Sanfano for this book. And Kevin was like, Hey man, here's the deal. Like you're writing too complicated. You're not writing in a simple way that people can take action for. And I was like, Oh, I mean, it's a very different way of writing. So we basically rewrote the squat Bible paragraph by paragraph, cut a bunch of crap out and narrowed it down to the the nuts and bolts of how do you write plainly? How do you write simply? (laughs) And it took me a long time I I literally have this like 10 commandments of writing that I have on my wall of things that we've come up with on uh, for when I'm writing things that I look for to make sure that the sentences I'm writing and the way I'm explaining things come across in a simple manner. Because I know if I can't write or if I'm reading something and it's too complicated, I'm not going to digest it. I'm not going to be able to take action on it. So how do other people who don't have a doctorate degree, how are they going to be able to, to take change Uh, from what I'm trying to convey. So when I hear that someone finds the the way in which I was writing simple, I find that extremely, uh, it's great to hear because that's what I was aiming for. I wanted it to be ivory tower knowledge, but written in a way any single person, no matter their background can understand. Because that's how I feel like you actually can make a change in the world is if people can understand what you're trying to say. I think we've all been at conferences, presentations, or, or even in courses where when it's all said and done and someone's like, Hey, how was it? You're like, that person was smart, man. They were smart. Yeah. But what'd you learn that that dude was smart. Yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. You don't, you don't walk away with any tangible uh, facts or information that you can use the next day, mm-hmm. but um, your, your stuff, you know, on social media, your podcast, your book, they're all takeaways right away after anyone reads it, even if they don't have a doctorate background, they're like, Oh yeah, I get it. I understand. Now I can go and apply. Yeah. So you, you, you hit the nail on the head there. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, with the book you reference, this is what I really like. So in, in fitness, as you know, sometimes people come up with things. Oh, uh, you should try this, put your feet off the floor and do a bench press, put your name on it. Now it's your bench press, but really it was just your feet off the bench, you know, but in your book, you reference, over 400 studies. There was like, that's a lot of reading, man. That's going to be a lot of reading. But I really appreciate that myself because then all of a sudden you mentioned something, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Then you can go look it up and you can actually see the research if you want to do that. But in each section of the book, you've got, you know, different joint by joint uh, major injuries, but the low back, you reference over 120 um, uh, research uh, studies, research papers there on that one there. I have a feeling that the low back is probably one of the more common injuries that you see in the barbell world. Is this true? It's very true. It's one of the most common for sure. I mean, I think just yesterday when I was going through my patients, I think I had 10 or 12 patients yesterday, I'd say 80% of them were dealing with back pain. Why, why back? Why is back the, just getting beat up in, in the world today? Gosh, it's like that. It's, it's just one of the most weak links, you know, it, there's a lot that can go on there. There's so many different small joints in that area. Uh, back pain alone is one of the most commonly injured problems in the entire world. It, you know, I've seen stats that at one time or another, 80% of people in the world today will have back pain at some point in their life. So it's just one of those very common uh, commonly injured areas. And the reason I wanted to show so much research was because like you mentioned, the things that I'm delivering to people, it's not something that I came up with on my own. I'm merely, like I mentioned before, a dwarf standing on the shoulders of giants who have come before me. I'm just taking in and synthesizing and then explaining in my own words, the best way that I can, because not only have I read a crap ton of research. Cause I'm just that huge nerd that loves to read research on research on research that most people don't. But then I also merge it with my clinical experience that, you know, treating patients for over a decade now, and then, you know, putting it into words 
that can be actionable because I've seen it work. I've read about it. I've seen it work. I merge it together. Um, and people need to need to be able to see that there's those connections because a lot of times, especially in today's age, there's a lot of talking on social media. There's a lot of people with a lot of opinions and I want to tell people like, Hey, this is where I'm getting all this from. Like Dr. Stuart McGill's work is not just done on pig spines. Yeah. You know that you, you just hear a lot of people uh, spout off different opinions and it's not backed up by anything. So I wanted to show people, Hey, here's the exact science behind it. And when you take it and pair that science with the practical approach, you find the best results long-term. Yeah. And McGill, McGill gets bullied all the time online, right? He's one of the, he's one of the nicest guys. And I always feel bad. He's such him. a nice guy. Yeah. And it's, it, it really comes down to there. You know, if you ever attend a scientific conference, it's not all, you know, best friends and buddies. Like there's a lot of very, very different opinions in any field, medical field, chiropractic, physical therapy. There's physical therapists that have very different opinions on the ways that is the best, you know, approach for different things. And the only way to combat that rather than saying, no, my way is the best. Here's my patient that got better is we also pair that with research, with scientific studies that help support our argument. You know, and the best way to make the best argument is to also have a lot of research behind that to sort of, you know, show that your uh, opinions are not only opinions that are not just anecdotal evidence. They're supported by the highest level of, of research out there. So it, it becomes uh, it adds weight and value to your argument. Yeah. Yeah. And Stu stuff. I mean, I've gone through the McGill method. Um, I, I had Stu work on me at one time and uh you, you, Stu is amazing what he does with people in session. Like I'm sure you've seen him do his thing, right? Yeah. He's very like meticulous, go here, pick this up, do all these little things, but you don't know exactly like what's going through his head or the, or the, the rationale. A lot of the, the variations of the McGill methods that you use with the back, man, they were simple, right? Like I could, I could show this to a friend who's not a trainer and be like, do you understand this? Oh mm -hmm. yeah, I get this now. Yeah. So I think he did a really um, phenomenal job kind of straightening that one up and making it. I appreciate it. Like yeah. And that, that's, that's the thing I really wanted to do was, you know, like I mentioned, the McGill method is, is a big part of, of the back pain chapter, but it's not the only thing. I mean, Stu has been by far one of the biggest um, influences on the, the way that I approach the back, but I wanted to make sure that I conveyed my approach in a way that was also my own words. So explain where Stu was coming from, but also add on to what I think could also be more beneficial. So I'm not a McGill certified clinician. I'm Aaron, you know, I'm myself and I, I learn and I take things from people before me and I try to mix it all up together in my own way of doing things and then explain it to people. Yeah. It's a good pot of jumbo, man. With you in the physical therapy world in that side of it, were you ever met with any defense when you say this is the way we kind of approach things? Cause you're big on barbells. And I know that that's not so popular in the rehabilitation world. It's more of clamshells, you know, or like after work, put some ice on you and out the door. Yeah. You know, I really, I feel like at times a little bit more of like the black sheep within the physical therapy community, just because for such a long time, uh, lifting or the approach of being a little bit more very functional uh, is not the norm. It's becoming more the norm. There's becoming more and more physical therapists that are strength minded and, you know, if you walk into any physical therapy, outpatient physical therapy clinic in the world, the likelihood of seeing a squat rack is very low. Mm -hmm. Unfortunate, you know, because I feel like that's something that, you know, almost every single physical therapy clinic should have. Kettlebells up to 50 pounds, you know, basic fundamental ways of loading the body. And I mean, the other day on Twitter, I, you know, just made a tweet that said, you know, I feel like every physical therapist should have the ability themselves to perform a squat, a deadlift, and the kettlebell swing. Basic fundamental ways of loading and moving the body. I'm not saying you need to be a national level power lifter at all, but I do feel like you should have the, the capacity to perform a barbell squat. And there were loads of people that just, you know, were very disappointed or had very adverse reactions to that. And um, it just goes to show that, you know, there's uh, many opinions within the physical therapy world and ways in which we should treat uh, patients or the ways in which we should uh, maintain our own bodies. You know, if, if I'm going to be giving 
uh, someone a squat exercise to perform or teach them how to perform a deadlift because they hurt their back deadlifting coming to me, I sure as hell should be able to perform a deadlift very well. You know, I don't have to be a world record powerlifter, but I should be able to show movement competency in a, a fundamental loaded movement, which is a push, a pull, and a carry. Simple things like that. And I feel like we've gotten lost as far as just physical fitness nowadays. Um, I mean, that's, I love CrossFit for that reason of reintroducing that back into the world, but too many people, you know, they're like, oh, I'm a runner. So I just run. I don't do any type of training or, you know, I, I love swimming. So I don't do any other type of functional training. Um, you know, let's see where we're at when we're 85 years old, because I've seen a lot of people who were fit when they were young yet because they didn't neglected the fundamental strength training habits, uh, that I believe are so necessary, they lose that function as they get older. And one of the number one determining factors of, uh, losing that, functionality as we get older, not being able to walk downstairs or pick up your grandkids or go grab the mail and back in, in 20 seconds, you know, is strength. And strength is something that we should be training for life. And I think as physical therapists, we are, should be just like a strength and conditioning coach. You should yourself be that, you know, to your patients. Yeah. There's a, there's a gap between, you know, life expectancy and disability free life. You know, like, I don't know what the numbers are. I'm going to guess it's probably about a decade. And a lot of times when you see people lose their mobility, they lose their independence. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, like they got the acorn chair lift in the house. They got the walker and stuff. Yeah. But, and I mean, also when you, you mentioned, you know, other aspects of physical therapy, uh, I came out as part of the book. The last chapter was on not icing. Yeah. You know? that, like people lighting uh, bags of dog poop on fire and put them on your doorstep now. <laughs> It's not that bad, but it's a lot of people being like, what do you mean ice isn't good? Like, it's just so normal for like, if you go into physical therapy, you get done with your session, you put a bag of ice on your shoulder or you start off with a hot pack on your back. You know, like there's, it's just ingrained in the physical therapy community, even worse in the medical community, you know, oh, something hurts, put a bag of ice on it. And we don't take a step back and go, Hey, show me some research that shows that ice is beneficial to the healing process because you won't find any. And when you really look at the breadth of information, you know, ice delays the healing process and it slows down your, your adaptation to try to heal and to regain muscle mass and to regain, you know, your function. It's not as beneficial as we think other than, you know, decreasing pain levels. So if you have, tremendous pain. If you just smash your hand in a door and it's just, I mean, your hand is killing you, put some ice on it. I don't care. You know, that's not the end of the world, but if you have knee pain from lifting or you have an achy back and you're looking for some relief, don't put a bag of ice on it. Let's be more proactive. Let's be more optimal in our approach. And there's many other things that we can do that actually will help you heal at a more optimal rate. And that's where we have movement, rehabilitation. I mean, people, movement is medicine. Mm -hmm. Well, let's approach it that way. Can you speak a little bit on where the concept of icing came from? Yeah. So um, ice originally, if you look back at all the research, icing was used only intentionally uh, decades and decades ago as a way to preserve body parts during like amputations or surgeries like that. So they would, you know, let's say you cut your finger off. Well, if you throw it on ice, you're actually going to have less cellular death so that you can maintain that limb and sew it back on and get it to work again. <laughs> However, eventually it sort of eased it way into uh, the modes of, of treating common injuries. In 1979, there was a man by the name of Dr. Gabe Merkin who wrote a book called The Sports Medicine Book. And in it, he coined the term RICE, rest, ice, compression, and elevation. Most people know the RICE protocol. And it, basically, it was a way of saying this is the best treatment for acute injuries. So if you sprain your ankle, you rest it, you don't keep on walking on it, you you know, put ice on it, you compress it maybe a little bit, and then you elevate, keep it up. That's the best way, that's the most optimal way he believed to treat injuries. And that eventually became commonplace. I mean, I saw pictures of Michael Jordan when I was a young kid, icing his knees, uh, you know, 
you were a baseball player and you got done pitching, you throw some ice on your shoulder, everyone iced. Well, uh, years later, people started questioning this. And um, there was a book called Iced, The Illusionary Treatment by Gary Rinal that came out and basically uh, took the idea of ice and just flipped it upside down and said, if you actually look at the research, it doesn't say anything about what we think it does. It actually delays and slows the healing process. It leads to swelling being trapped in the area. It leads to greater atrophy. So muscles shrinking in size for someone who had like an, a knee surgery. If you put ice on that knee, those quad muscles are going to atrophy. You're not going to promote the healing process. And actually, Dr. Gabe Merkin, the man who wrote the protocol for rice, actually came out, recanted, took back his statement after looking at all the research, and then actually wrote the foreword to the second edition of Gary's book and said, I was wrong. I used to laze the healing process, and there are other ways in which we can be more optimal in the recovery process. I know that, I know that first kid. In, in 2006, I blew my ankle out. I played college uh, basketball. Mm -hmm. I blew it out, and my season was done. So they said, stay at home for a couple of weeks. You know, all the bruising went up my leg. Then I started my rehab and all for two weeks, it was nothing but ice. I go and do my rehab. I'm on a trampoline. They put my ankle in a bucket of ice. Yeah. And, and guess what, Aaron? Today I compete in powerlifting. Guess which limb has less dorsiflexion? The exactly. one I put right? And I just look back. I'm like, oh man, I wish they were, I wish we did something a little different. Yeah. I mean, you, you would have kept that thing moving, maybe use a, like a power dot or a compact unit to get that thing, some blood flow pumping. You'd be in a completely different boat because like you mentioned, less ankle dorsiflexion. One of the things that's so common after ankle sprains is we have a lot of scarring. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? There's research that shows that adding ice to an injury leads to increase of scarring within the damaged tissue. I, I won't even eat rice anymore. I won't <laughs> You did, you did mention there about the power dot. So I read your book mm -hmm. and I was, I was very interested in that because I, I get treatment done periodically by a, 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 a guy down here in Cairo and he stims me up and does the thing. It feels good. And then in your book, you said, Hey, if you're going to get one, these are ones I recommend to use. I never thought of using that like as self um, uh, self rehabilitation or self uh, re um, recovery. How does someone use that in their own training, like to, to recover or from an injury? So there's different ways and different settings of them. So the way most practitioners use them, I will say, if you have an injury, sometimes is um, called high rate tins, basically, where it uh, it sort of numbs and tingles. You know, it makes you feel a little bit better um, and sometimes can create a, a hard muscle contraction based on the way in which you're, you're setting it on. The way I'm asking people to use it is called low rate tens. And basically it just leads to a quick muscle twitch. Mm -hmm. And all that's doing is simulating movement. So for example, let's say you have a really, really tough workout and your quads are nice and sore or you hurt your knee. Okay. You put one of those units on your quad and you turn it on like the active recovery mode, which is what most of them have it on. And it just creates this small, constant twitch. Every second, there's another twitch. And it's non-fatiguing. You can leave it on for an hour or two hours and you take it off. You feel fine. It doesn't feel any different. Um, it's not like a strength protocol or anything like that. What that does is it pushes blood towards the area and pulls damaged tissue away or damaged cells away. So anytime that you have an injury or you've worked out really hard, there is actually damaged cells within that area. There's constant turnover just to a different degree based on if it was a really intense workout or a knee injury. Um, and the only way that that damage is taken away from the area or evacuated is through what's called the lymphatic system. Now the lymphatic system is called a passive system. So where your circulatory system, your blood uh, that moves through your veins and arteries, it is pumped through this gear box called your heart, and it moves to and from the heart. Well, your lymphatic system is this similar network of highway, basically roads running up and down your body, but it doesn't move anything through it unless muscles contract. So movement allows whatever's traveling through it to be pushed through back towards the center of the body. So 
if you wanted to just sit down and put one of those on power dot complex mark pro it just simulates muscle contraction and allows the lymphatic system to do its job and remove damaged tissue from the area damaged cells from the area has there been any uh, research showing like is it possible to actually hypertrophy the muscle using that um, it's not necessarily that it could hypertrophy the muscle, but it will limit atrophy. So it will limit the muscle from getting smaller. So for example, let's say you had an ACL tear and then you had it surgically, uh, surgically repaired instead of, uh, having, uh, ice placed on your knee. What I would do is I would put one of those, uh, units on your quad and just get that constant muscle pump. So you're bringing blood flow to and from the area. And in doing so, you will limit atrophy. So your muscles usually because of a ton of swelling within the knee and because you're not using it, you're not walking on your quad, you're not strength training as much on that side. It's called disuse atrophy. Your muscles will actually shrink in size. Well, if you're applying a movement like stimulus to it, you don't see that disuse atrophy. So again, we can be much more optimal in uh, seasons where we may not be able to use our muscles as much, um, by applying a unit like this. Now for actual hypertrophy, you need a lot of, uh, load stimulus usually. So usually that's not something that can be applied via a, uh, uh, a mechanical stimulus like, uh, an NMES unit. Okay. So you could just hook it up to your pecs and then hit the Olympia stage in about six months. Usually not. Usually we need a little bit more load through. <laughs> now I, I could be, I, I don't believe there's much research that shows that, that it could be helpful. Usually it's on any research on an NMAS unit like that, that's talking about hypertrophy is on patients maybe that already have a good amount of atrophy and we're using it for improving strength quality and maybe improving, getting the muscle to work well again. Have you seen the uh, the beer drinking challenge with it? I have not. Oh, oh man, this is this is on the internet. You hook it okay. up your forearm and your bicep. You crack open a beer, and then yeah. someone goes to take it to drink it. You <laughs> shoot it up, and the objective is how much can you actually drink with your arm going all over the place? You want that would be extremely out? tough. Yeah, you want to waste some time, man. It's all over YouTube. Check it out. <laughs> I will have to try that. I just know the other week I put it. Um, I had the unit that I use on my quads, and I was trying to write. So I had my computer on my thighs, and like within a second, I'm like, "Yeah, this isn't gonna work." Like my <laughs> thighs are just jumping, so the computer's bouncing around. I'm like, "This isn't gonna work." <laughs> I want to get to a few more questions before we end it here. So I I'm a personal trainer, and the majority of people listening to this are either they exercise or they are trainers or strength and conditioning coaches themselves. Mm -hmm. So if you were to give like one piece of advice to a trainer who work with general pop people, what would it be just so they don't maybe to keep their clients from getting injured? Cause, because Stu, Stu once told me a lot of his patients that come to him have gotten injured in the gym or they got injured from a trainer. Yeah. The, the biggest piece of content or biggest piece of advice I would say is to continue educating yourself day in and day out because the, the best way to not injure someone is to understand what you could be doing that is good or bad. As simple as that sounds, the more educated you are, the better you can be for your patients. In the same way, I would ask a physical therapist to never stop learning and to always continue trying to progress in their own education so that then they can optimize the treatment of their patients. So as a trainer, you need to be spending every single day doing something that's gonna help better educate yourself so that you can be a better trainer for your clients. I like that. And I, uh, I attest to that book as well. You know, if you are a personal trainer and you don't want to, you don't want to dig deep into the McGill research, but you want to get some quick, simple facts, like the rebuilding Milo is, is an easy one. I put on my social media that I was going to sit down and chat with you. And I said, Hey, is anyone got any questions? And I got a ton of questions. Like I got close to a hundred different ones. Wow. So I'm all, yeah. Some people think you're cool, I guess. <laughs> so I'm just going to ask a couple specific ones here and maybe just yep. give you a quick, like 60 second answer that you would, you would say for this. So Jay fish wants to know good habits for hips. So just to keep the hips, you know, mobile and moving over time, what are some good habits you might recommend for someone? Sitting in a deep squat every single day for up to 10 minutes total. That's just something that Kelly Starrett came out with, like this, uh, the 10 minute squat test. But literally throughout your day, get up, sit down in a deep squat and just move around freestyle. Feel your hips working through a full range of motion. Yeah, I love that. 
Awesome stuff. Eric WKP, he wants to know appropriate dosage for mobility and stability because, you know, some people need more, some people need less. When you're working with Gen Pop, in your experience, what do you tend to see that they need more of, mobility or stability? That's tough because, uh, again, it's on a case-by-case basis, but I'm going to give the cliche answer of both is that we need to often focus on both. And that's where the evaluation process comes in. As a trainer, again, a lot of the stuff that I try to give out are very simple tests and measures that you can use quickly to find out, is the person you're working with needing to focus on either or test and find out? Because there are some people that you'll find that they don't need any mobility work because they're very, very flexible people. However, you'll have other people that, you know, they're very, very stiff. So you need to find and, and dose individually. Yeah, and I've always noticed that with power lifters specifically, right? Some of them are spending so much time on mobility, 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 but it's like, uh, you need a little more stability when you're under the bar. And then you get the other people who are doing, you know, the yoga people who are stretching. Mm-hmm. They yeah. don't stretch. They, they, that's what they do all the time. They need to stabilize. It's, there is a continuum mm-hmm. of stiffness and mobility. And on one side, on the mobility side, you have the yogi, you have the person that is extremely flexible, like Gumby. Mm -hmm. And then you have the very, very stiff power lifter. Now he has to have a good amount of stiffness in order to squat a thousand pounds and not have it, you know, bend him over and and break his back. Mm -hmm. So you have to find where you want to be on that spectrum in order to reach your end goals. Did you, did you see Blaine take 1,080 the other day alone on the yeah. back floor? Yeah, and yeah, I saw that video. The bar was wobbling, so he just he dumps it. The yeah. bar wasn't stable enough for him. Crazy. Guy's a freak. Yeah. Um, th- these are Instagram names. LMFAYO. <laughs> LMFAYO <laughs> wants to know, and do you have any tricks for people with flat feet? Uh, flat feet. I like those people to get out of their shoes actually more often and strengthen the foot structure they do have. A lot of times people are quick to give you an orthotic to prop that foot up into an arch. If you were given a foot structure, that's a little bit more flat. That doesn't mean that necessarily you need an orthotic. It means you need to actually strengthen and get better control of the foot structure you do have. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. So would you say like this train barefoot is, is a simple go-to or does it? Yeah. Yeah. That'd be a great go-to is you need to be out of your shoes and loading your body more frequently and becoming more aware of the foot that you do have because too often people that have flat feet, they're put into supportive shoes. They're given orthotics. And here's an interesting fact. Research shows that people who wear orthotics often have atrophied foot muscles. So the small muscles within the feet actually shrink in size because they don't need to work as hard anymore. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden you're putting yourself into a position that you almost have to wear your shoes all the time. Well, if you have a poor functioning foot, what do you think's happening up the rest of your chain? Now, there are some people that do require an orthotic, but I feel like it's a very small percentage of people that were actually peddling or out orthotics too nowadays. And most people would actually benefit more so from getting out of these very supportive shoes and just learning how to strengthen the foot that they do have. Mm-hmm. I've heard you mention before about unilateral differences and nature built us a little bit different. We don't be symmetrical all the time. So this is a very interesting thing that I know. This is my question. I have more arch on one foot than the other. And I thought it was because of maybe a couple of injuries I've had over time. And then I've got two boys. I had a six-year-old and a four-year-old. When we stand in the exact same position, they have the exact same arch that I have. Mm. They have less on one foot than the other. Have you seen this before, like in your practice? Like, is it genetically possible to have one arch a little bit different than the other foot? I can't say I've seen that before. I mean, I'll, I'll send you a photo. It's bizarre because yeah. I was told from a, you know, a handful of different people, they said, yeah, it's because you've injured that side and you probably lost your arch a little bit. I said, okay. And then one time I'm at the pool with my boy and I'm like, Hey, turn your feet. And I'm like, Oh, you got daddy's arch. And he's sick. <laughs> like, interesting. Yeah. He didn't blow his ankle out playing ball. Right. Like he, we got this yeah. arches. Um, anyway. Uh, so just as we end this here, mm-hmm. I know you are a bit of a hip hop fan. Huge hip hop fan. Yeah. Nineties too. Me yes. as well. Me as okay. Well. I think you and I are probably a couple of weeks apart in age. So 90s yeah. is also my jam. So you know what I got for you? I got a quick little trivia. You oh gosh. Some hip hop okay. Let's, let's do it. Okay. Just to end it off here. Okay. So who is the only MC to rap a verse in Notorious B.I.G.'s Ready to Die album? I'm going to give you options. Mace, Method Man, or Red Man? 
I would say based on my, I know that Mace did do versus with Notorious B.I.G., but I don't know if it was on that album or not. I'm going to say Mace just because I can envision different songs that they've done before, though I do know that Biggie was on with other stuff with those other guys for. So I'm going to say Mace. I would have said Mace too, but it, yeah. is, it is Method Man. Is it his Method Man? Yeah, Mace was on afterwards. Yeah, I yeah. got pulled on that one too. Okay, who sings the hook on Jay-Z's Can't Knock the Hustle? Mary J. Blige, Aaliyah, or Beyonce? Can't Knock the Hustle, 90s hip-hop. I think it's Aaliyah. It is not Aaliyah. It's Mary J. Blige. Gosh, I knew it wasn't Beyonce because that's way too soon. Okay, I know you got this one. <laughs> now I'm two for the minute. You get a W. This is the yeah. W for you. Okay, NWA. Okay. Name all the members. I'm going to give you the options. Okay. Ice Cube, Easy E, or Dre, Cube, Easy E, MC Ren, or Dre, Cube, Easy E, DJ Yella, and MC Ren. Gosh. You are now about to. I'm going to go with the last one. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's all five of them. All five of them. There you go. That is NWA. So we'll end it on a W. There we go. That's good. I'm so bad at trivia sometimes. <laughs> Dr. Aaron, it's been an absolute honor and pleasure to have you on the Project Fitness Podcast. And I know that my audience is going to love this chat here today. And anyone who is listening, um, if you have not already picked up the Rebuilding Milo book, as a personal trainer, I recommend you do it. There's no reason not to. This is something you can easily digest and then apply it to your clients on a Monday. Just lastly, Aaron, what is next for Squat University? What do you got going on on your side? Um, right now, just putting out as much free content as I can every single day. Um, and I'm working on another book right now, actually. Um, that's going to be a collaboration book um, on Olympic weightlifting. Oh, fantastic. So that'll be, it'll be a few years for that one to come up, but that's, uh, that's where all my, my writing is going right now. Awesome, man. Well, I can't wait to get my hands on that book. So again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'll leave hey, you. Thank with, you so I, much for having me on. I, I hope you stay um, positive in life and negative in COVID. <laughs> Love it. Thanks, Aaron. Hey, thank you so much. Never stop learning because life never stops teaching. If you've learned at least one thing from this podcast and your mission is to help other people, please share this podcast with them. And a reminder, we will be releasing one episode every Monday for the entire year. So make sure to hit subscribe so you get the updated information as soon as possible. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And thank you so much for allowing me to be part of it.